0: Let's pray together. Father, we have praised you because that is what we ought to do. What's what we desire, I pray, each and every one to do because, God, you alone are worthy of praise. Father, we do so because not only ought we and you are worthy of, but your word directs us to. God, you have given us your word, a living word, a word recorded with words that we may understand. Father, for that we are thankful. And God, as we turn now to this word, I pray that your spirit that inspired these words would speak to our hearts. Father, would you guard error from my mouth? Father, would you guard distraction from our ears and minds? And Lord, may the time that follows be one in which we meet you. Father, might we be caught up In the beauty of the gospel story that we're living, that is told in this word, of which we are characters, and yet you are the key subject. Father, would you allow us the privilege of seeing you, so to speak, today in a way that brings us into a deeper, richer relationship with Christ And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 1963, a man by the name of Frank Abagnale was denied a business loan at Chase Manhattan Bank in New Rochelle, New York. And as a result, the Abagnale family was forced to move out of their home and into a much smaller apartment. And times were tough in the months that followed as Frank failed to find work and his family struggled to get by. And his son, who shared his father's name, eventually ran away from home and he began pulling scams to acquire money, to assist his family, known as confidence scams, Frank Jr. would earn the trust of an unwitting individual and then convince them of a great financial opportunity where he was the beneficiary. And as Frank realized the monetary possibilities that these scams presented, he became bolder and bolder in his scheming, eventually posing as an airline pilot for Pan Am. Frank was able to forge pilot checks and eventually stole almost $3 million from the airline. And In addition to passing himself off as a pilot, Frank also played the role of a doctor and a lawyer. He actually diagnosed patients. He wrote prescriptions. He represented clients. He even passed the bar exam. Frank conned hundreds of people out of millions of dollars. And inevitably, as people would begin to ask questions, Frank would be forced to flee to avoid incarceration only to settle somewhere else. And as you can imagine, pick back up again. Now, I I I would think that many of us have likely heard Of Frank Abagnale and his life of crime. In 2002, Steven Spielberg made a movie about Frank and it involved both Leonardo DiCaprio as well as Tom Hanks. It was called Catch Me If You Can. Now, how many of you have seen Catch Me If You Can? I thought that would be the case. You know, what's amazing about Frank's life is how convincingly this guy played the roles that he assumed. Pretending to be a doctor and a lawyer, This guy duped scores of people. However, in the end, his charade crashed as he couldn't keep it up. For As our esteemed 16th president is quoted as saying, no man has a good enough memory to make a successful liar. Despite all of Frank's lies and impersonating, he was eventually caught and he went to prison. And in the film, Frank is portrayed as perpetrating his crimes out of a desire for peace. Frank, he he was stricken by his family's financial fallout, and he believes if he can only get enough money, then maybe he could recapture that childhood dream that he had that was lost. But in the end, he discovers the truth that lies don't lead to peace. In Emmanuel this morning, we're going to come to a passage in the book of James where our author similarly, I believe, warns us of passing ourselves off as that which we aren't, or as possessing. That which we don't have, because in the end, our actions will reveal our deception marked by the absence of the peace that we so desperately desire. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, would you open it with me to the book of James and find chapter three, James chapter three and find verse 13. In chapter 3, because if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we examined together James's warnings regarding the tongue. And it, it's interesting to note that there are some scholars who argue that the verses that we're going to study together today are a continuation of the words that were warning of the teachers that were referenced in the very first two verses of chapter 3. But as I believe we're going to see in a moment, the subject of today's exhortation reflects a much broader designation than just that of a teacher. I believe that verses 13 through 18 here James is addressing all of us as Christ followers. Everything that ensues is for us church and so I want us to hear it together. James 3 beginning with verse 13 our author writes these words. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it, denying the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, And sincere peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And may God bless the public reading of His Word. Emmanuel, I'd like to begin by establishing who is the who. Who is the who? A moment ago I said that I believe that everything that James says in the verses here that ensue pertains to Christians in general. So who's the who that James is addressing here, verse 13? And as we mentioned at the beginning, there are some scholars who argue that verse 13 is just a continuation of James's warning to the many of you who presume to be teachers mentioned back in verse 1 of chapter 3. And the reason that these commentators feel this way is that the wisdom described is a teacher's possession. And also the subject of their instruction, therefore they're continuing, James here is continuing to exhort those in the church who would have been teachers. However, here in verse 13, James ascribes wisdom and understanding to the who, right? He says, who is wise and understanding among you? And while we'd naturally attribute both of these characteristics to the teacher, neither of these titles in scripture is regularly used as a reference for a teacher, And one Bible scholar notes how these terms occur several times in the Old Testament as descriptions of the qualities that leaders ought to possess, but they're also used with application to the whole of the people of Israel. Additionally, and as you may recall, the teachers who are addressed in verse 1 aren't in fact already teaching, but rather those who would presume to be. That's a much broader group than those who currently filled the role. Thus, it appears to me, James isn't narrowly writing to those who are in a teaching position, but rather, he's speaking to all believers, to the church. And so for these reasons, I believe, along with others, that here, verse 13, this who is applicable to us all. And, and church, this is important because it means that here in our text today, James isn't presenting an exclusive challenge to the few who teach, those whom we've been blessed to have who fill roles in our Sunday school on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday evening. No, rather, this is a general exhortation regarding two forms of wisdom, both of which Relate to the warnings issued previously regarding the tongue, as we're about to see. And so, friends, we're all the who here. So, what are we to do? And James's answer is that the wise should show their wisdom. The wise should show their wisdom. You notice how James asks there, "Who is wise and understanding among you?" And this. This is a rhetorical question for those who are wondering. This rhetorical questioning is reminiscent of Christ's. It's recorded throughout the the New Testament, rather, in the Gospels, and particularly in Mark. Chapter 4, verse 21 is an example where, as you might recall, Jesus is sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he says, Do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? And then again in verse 30, he goes on and says, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? rhetorical questions and in this form of questioning James like Jesus before him isn't asking who is wise as if he doesn't know rather he's challenging those who rashly considered themselves to be so to self-examination for James the wise and understanding revealed themselves not by how they felt or by what they thought but by what they did and Before we comment on how James considers such wisdom to be practically evidence, I just want to point out the implications of the two terms that James uses here to characterize such an individual, namely wise and understanding. The term wise here, one pastor observes it is described an individual who possessed moral insight and skill in deciding practical issues of conduct. It's a wisdom derived from one's personal knowledge of God. And this is the attribute, if you recall, that James is attributed as being from God, back in chapter 1 and verse 5, where he declares, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God, who gives to all generously. And so the wisdom James is describing here comes from God and God alone. It's interesting, the patristic theologian Augustine, who lived between four fifty or 354 and 430 A.D., considered such wisdom to be personified as the triune God fully expressed in the incarnate Christ. He, he believed, as the Apostle Paul declared in Colossians, that in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And so since God alone is wise, according to Romans 16 verse 27, Christ then is the wisdom of God. And so those who are wise are those who know Christ and are filled by his Spirit. And so I believe that this term wise here has clear Christological connotations that we'll speak about as we get to the end. But The second term, then, this understanding is one which one commentator observed reflected an expert's knowledge of a subject, a specialist's ability to apply their fuller knowledge to practical situations. So for James, understanding is practical, pragmatic. It's not merely a knowing intellectually what's true, but rather a performing of such actions as truth demands. And friends, I would hope that this goes without saying in light of their sermon series, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyways, just in case. But isn't this the same principle that we've seen underlies James's entire letter? The point as we've entitled it, faith works. The belief of the heart and mind results in action, obedience, consistent with and commanded by the God believed in. One can't have faith and not work, according to James. As James points it out with reference earlier to the tongue here in chapter 3, can both Fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither, James says, can salt springs produce fresh water. And so, in the same way, someone who is wise and understanding will show their understanding, their wisdom. And to so this point, James states they're going to show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And in the original language in which James wrote this phrase, it is an exact duplicate, a parallel to chapter 2 in verse 18. If you wanted to underline those so that you can go back and look at them later. But in chapter 2 verse 18, James writes, I will show you my faith by what I do. And so for James, he makes it clear that just because one claimed to have faith, such faith if it's unaccompanied by gospel obedience is dead. And we remember that verse And it's the same principle here, and it holds true regarding wisdom. If someone believes themselves to be wise, their life is going to display. For James, right orthodoxy or right preaching and believing isn't the mark of true wisdom. Right orthopraxy or
1: behavior,
0: right living is. And so for James, this living is marked by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. If you have an ESV translation, this verse is rendered works in the meekness of wisdom. the Holman renders it this way, works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. And each of these translations, I believe, sheds light on the manner in which wisdom shows itself. One theologian notes it's, it's that attitude of the heart that produces gentleness and mildness in dealing with others. This isn't a weakness, but it's a power Under control. The meek don't feel a need to contend for the recognition of their rights and acceptance of their personal views. Their lives will be characterized by modesty and an unobtrusiveness. that Another commentator adds that such action here, as is described, conveys a healthy understanding of, of our own unworthiness before God and a corresponding humility and lack of pride in our dealings with all of our fellow human beings. And church, I doubt there's a one of us this morning that would be surprised by this truth, I hope, because we all know the idiom, you practice what you do preach, right? We all detest the hypocrite who says one thing and then he does another, and yet don't we all battle to live this way? How many of us desperately want to be wise, and yet we find ourselves battling with the same childlike mistakes? Or how many of us consider our hearts to be fresh springs, as James describes them, only to have this brackish liquid escape from our lips from time to time? Friends, the truth is that not a one of us is capable of what James is urging here in our own strength. Just as, we, just as wisdom here comes only from God, Christ then is the wisdom. We can't control our tongues, James said it earlier, so neither can we be wise in and of ourselves. Jesus is God's wisdom, and therefore we've got to ask God for this wisdom and then believe, as James urges, without any doubting, meaning we ask in faith, and then God will give it generously. So James exhorts here the wise to show their wisdom. And then he provides us, as we talked about with the kids, the evidence of false wisdom or what wisdom is not. I want you to look back with me to verse 14. In verse 14, James writes these words. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. Now, Notice the first thing there that James provides regarding this so-called wisdom, these signs. He gives us signs, and he offers two. First, that of bitter envy. Second, that of selfishness. And the term that James uses here for envy is an interesting one in the original language of the New Testament. It's a neutral word. It's one that without the adjective bitter would simply have been translated as zeal as excitement, if you will, which James uses this adjective back in verse 11, same chapter, and there it's actually rendered salt, as in salt water. But here, what's being pictured as this adjective is used is this picture of a harsh attitude. It's treating others negatively. It's an adversarial view that's being described. And then the second term that's here enhances this original distinction between the individual and another as it is a selfish ambition. And this is the attitude that's portrayed by one who works for personal reward and without the concern for the welfare of those others that they might encounter in their pursuit of such reward. And, church, what James is describing here are simply attitudes with which we are all familiar, are we not? You don't go to school to learn how to envy, you don't have to be taught to be selfish and to have ambition. Such drives are with us the moment we open our eyes. Now, over time and as we go to school, we become more adept at masking such self-serving motivations. We learn to sell our selfishness as selflessness. And this is the kind of message that you hear almost every politician that stumps for office proclaim, right? I mean, yet James here says these are signs of so-called wisdom, pseudo-wisdom, in quotes, if you will. So those are the signs. But what about the source? And James says this source isn't heaven, as the NIV renders it, if that's your translation. The ESV and the Holman both read from above. And James's point here, I believe, is that this wisdom isn't from God. And it doesn't originate external to the human person. Rather, it arises in the heart. In James's words, these attitudes are harbored in the heart. And so they're just like the reality of temptation that James noted earlier in this letter that doesn't come from without, but rather... Within. Temptation, according to James, is the result of one's own evil desires that when succumbed to drag us away and they give birth to sin. And sin when full grown results in death. And so James insists, this so-called wisdom source is within. And further, and in contrast to the gifts that we're told come from above, all of which are good and perfect, this wisdom is earthly, and therefore it's bound to the temporal realm. It's inhabited by fallen men and women. James also notes that this wisdom is unspiritual, meaning that it springs from the mental and the emotional impulses of human beings. It's marked by a depraved concept. It's desires as well as its aspirations are all depraved and then finally james describes this wisdom as being of the devil of the devil and this reference here isn't to attribute such so-called wisdom exclusively to satan so that we can point fingers and say well it's not my fault the devil made me do it but rather just to distinguish further the wisdom that is being described which is marked by jealousy Crafty party faction and egotistical boasting to contrast that which is so-called wisdom from God's true wisdom. And Emmanuel, I believe that this point is simply just a, a repeat of that which we saw several weeks ago, which we've already mentioned this morning. That is that a salt water spring cannot produce fresh water. Just as fig trees will produce frig figs, so too will a heart that's depraved, self serving, and sinful. It's going to generate a wisdom that is Holy, other than God's wisdom. And this is significant. So we've noted the signs. We've addressed the source. So now what's the significance? And in verse 16, James gives it to us. He declares, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Church, the result of such false wisdom is chaos. It's a word that James used back in chapter 1 and verse 8 to describe a double-minded person, somebody who's unstable. For James, discord, division, and disobedience define the people whose wisdom is of the world. In addition, this wisdom is the mark of the truth denied, as James phrases it, verse 14, where the truth, I believe, here is the gospel. And thus, every community in which the gospel is either absent or it's been denied is going to be marked by strife. Peace will be a longing. And nothing more. And friends, as we look around our world, as we look to our nation even, these are defining features, aren't they? We live in a world that's at war, a world that's divided, a world diseased. And as desperate as people are to find peace, to live in harmony and experience prosperity, such aspirations are elusive at best. They're explosive at worst. You know, unable to settle on what is peace. We all seek the biggest peace, don't we? That's P-I-E-C-E. We all want what's best for me. And therefore, the presence of strife within any people is a sure sign that their wisdom is not from God. So, if such discontentment and division demonstrates false wisdom, what then are the marks of true wisdom? And I believe that James provides them for us in verses 17 and 18. So I want us to, to see now together evidence of true wisdom. The evidence of true wisdom. James writes... But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. In this, in this verse, church, I believe James gives us seven characteristics of true wisdom. One of them contains a double element, and we'll see that in a moment. But the first mark of true wisdom that James gives us is that it is pure wisdom That is true, is pure. And this term communicates cleanliness. It's the absence of defilement, freedom from vices, and distance from all pollutants. And this word is one that James, or the one that James uses here, is one that's found throughout the scriptures and is especially associated with Jesus. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, the apostle writes, Everyone who has this hope, that's faith in the living Christ, if everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Christ, is pure. And this purity is not merely descriptive of action, but it also reflects on motivation. Thus, God's wisdom lacks any and all marring. It's perfect in motivation, and it's complete in practice. For James, wisdom's purity isn't merely an attribute, but it's the, it's the ground of all of wisdom's attributes. The purity of wisdom is foundational to its being true wisdom. And church, if you recall... Earlier, we talked of Augustine's view that 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 this wisdom, true wisdom, is Christ. And I believe that the significance then of this initial attribute only increases because as it reveals that purity here not only defies or describes action and reflects motivation, but it also pictures character, doesn't it? Christ's character. As God the Son, Jesus is holy God, pure, without fault, and it's only as such that He could go to the cross on our behalf. It was only as such the god of god son of god purity that in his purity that christ could be a worthy substitute because if jesus had committed sin of his own if he if he'd been a sinf- sinful person just as you and i then he would have needed to atone for those sins but as the perfect sinless pure spotless lamb of god christ didn't deserve the wages of death rather he willingly paid ours so that we might not have to and therefore god accepted christ's sacrifice so now whoever believes in Jesus, may share in his death and in his resurrection victory. So the wisdom first for James of God, the true wisdom of God is pure and second it's peace loving. It flows out of the purity of God himself. God's wisdom came to bring us peace and it's this peace which is defined by the absence of discord and the elimination of conflict. For James, God's wisdom as it marks God's people reflects God's character. It's a perfect unity and you recall what Christ, the wisdom of God, prayed for his disciples right before he was crucified. In John chapter 17, the apostle records Jesus' prayer that all of them may be what? One. Just as you are in me, Father, and I am in them, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete Unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God's wisdom is first pure, peace-loving, and then considerate. The third thing, and this is one that commentators are all agreed is probably the most difficult to translate, and so as I was studying it, they offered us a list to render this word a little bit more understandable. They offered it as forbearing, courteous, reasonable, kindly, in the underlying sense, if you will, of this word is that of a respect for the feelings of others and of being unwilling or rather willing to avoid all harshness in your dealings with another. And church, isn't this what Christ did for us? If you consider Paul's words in Philippians 2 where he describes Jesus as one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but rather made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant being made in human likeness and being obedient even to death, death on a cross. Christ knew our sinful condition and there was nothing that we could do to escape it. And therefore, he took our sin upon himself so that we might have peace. God's wisdom is pure. It's peace-loving. It's considerate. Fourth, it's submissive. And this is a term, when was one which, were, like the word meek, It's this is a word that's often misunderstood. The submissiveness of God's wisdom isn't a, a bowing or a bending to the will and wants of others, but rather it's a sensitivity to the truth and a willingness to always serve the truth. And church, I believe that God's wisdom submissiveness was most perfectly expressed when Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. In God's wisdom, we see the react or the rejection rather of all falsehood and the acceptance of the truth. And thus any community, men and women who follow Christ, any community marked by godly wisdom, will demonstrate a similar passion for truth and a desire to demonstrate righteousness. God's wisdom is pure. It's peace-loving. It's considerate, submissive. And then fifth, it's full of mercy and good fruit. And this is that list's double characteristic there. And it stands in direct contrast to the evil practices that you see attributed to false wisdom there in verse 16. And here James uses this term mercy to describe an attitude of compassion towards those in distress, that leads, not just an attitude, but that leads then to practical help. For as one theologian observes, mercy prefers to deal with the needy in terms of what is needed rather than what is deserved. And the results of these dealings, James views as their fruit, all of which are good. And churches, we consider God's wisdom, isn't it it a relief to know that, that Christ is merciful and that he desires our good? Isn't it amazing to think that, that in everything we encounter, our God works everything for good and for His glory. The mercy of God ought to mark the people of God and result in the glory of God. As church is the body of Christ, we have been shown mercy, and therefore we must show mercy. God's Spirit dwells within us, and therefore as the Apostle Paul declared to the church in Galatia in chapter 5, we should be producing what? The fruit of the Spirit, right? Good fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. God's wisdom is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. And sixth, impartial. God's true wisdom is impartial. It reflects the generosity that James describes back in chapter 1 and verse 5. God's wisdom isn't jaded or unstable, but it's undivided in mind, impartial, it means that God's wisdom doesn't change like the shifting shadows, like we as human beings do, but rather God's wisdom is unwavering. And this, this characteristic pictures the opposite of one further cause, I believe, for division within our culture and our world today, because how often is our partiality cause for strife? If, if I'm honest, I have a tendency to hang out with people who are like me. I'm partial. To those who share my interests, I'm partial to people who speak my language and are interested in the teams that I'm interested in, share my beliefs. And church, it's these partialities that God's wisdom does not display. For God so loved the who? World. God loves each and every person, and Christ's death was sufficient to cover the sins of everyone Who would believe? God's wisdom is impartial, and as God's people, we should display this reality and be leading efforts to reconcile in areas where it's lacking. We can't sit on the sidelines while there's impartiality displayed in our culture and say nothing. If we are to bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth as it is in heaven, then we ought to be on the front lines of battling impartiality. God's wisdom is pure peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and then finally sincere or without hypocrisy. God's wisdom is genuine and therefore it has it has nothing to hide or to be ashamed of. And friends, I think that this characteristic is one of the most significant in light of our current cultural malaise. And today sincerity sincerity is seemingly non-existent. I and mean, when fake news rules and Truth is subjectively and contextually defined. It's impossible, seemingly impossible to be confident in anything. How can I know that what I heard happened or saw even actually happened? When, even if you're there, can you be sure that what you saw was in fact the truth? When there's other eyewitnesses who drew different conclusions based upon their own perceptions, what, what am I to believe? Can I believe anything with confidence today? Do you feel this way this morning? I mean, has your life been marked by the absence of anything fixed, a, a point of reference if you will, against which you can measure those things that you hear, significance and determine meaning? Melinda and I had the opportunity yesterday to go visit Chuck and Susie and as we were leaving, she shared with us how her life right now feels like she's in a storm. Said so She feels like she's a little boat and her life is just getting rocked. The waves, the wind, it's just almost overwhelming, and yet she said, I am so thankful that I have an anchor that holds. Now, for those of us who are familiar with Baptist hymnody, we know that references a song. My anchor holds in the midst of a storm, and yet that was her word of confidence. In the midst of a life where circumstances are wholly contrary to what the world would define as peaceful, as pure. And It might be this morning that your life reflects Chuck and Susie's. You're not sure where to turn. You don't have any confidence in what tomorrow holds, what this very afternoon holds, going to work tomorrow. You don't know. You have no certainty with regards to the present and certainly no hope regarding your future. You're a boat in a storm, and you may not even have an anchor in that boat. Friends, if that's you this morning, I've got good news. I've got gospel news. Because God's wisdom, who is Jesus, is the way, the truth, the life. He's the only way that we can find healing in this life and purpose for this life. And he never changes. Friends, I hope and pray this morning that every single one of us knows God's wisdom and that your life is a testimony To this wisdom, as we've just said, it's not just a matter of intellectually knowing, but it's a demonstrating. If you are wise, your life will reveal that wisdom. How have we seen it described? By the fruit that is of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, those things will be evidenced in your life. Not your life circumstances, but rather the fruit of your life in the midst of those circumstances. I pray, church, that God would continue to make us One, as Jesus prayed, that our lives would demonstrate the purity, the the love of peace, the consideration, the submission, mercy, impartiality, and sincerity of Christ. Because as James concludes there in the verses that we've looked at, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of what? Righteousness. Friends, I pray that our faith family would continue to evidence the unity that God has so graciously given us. I I praise Him for it because we are a church marked in our city by the presence of peace as those who God has brought to be a part of who we are have attested every time. It's not because you have an awesome and good-looking pastor. It's not because you have an amazing music team, all of which is true. It's because we have a love for one another that cannot be described. It can't, be, it can't be attested to because it comes from God, doesn't it? God has given us this peace, church. I pray that we would make every effort by God's grace and in His power to live this reality so that a world defined by chaos and division would be drawn to our joy that is only found in Jesus. And would you pray with me as we close? Father, we give you praise that though our life circumstances might reflect the atmospheric conditions outside this building, dark, threatening. Father, we might feel like we've heard many of our members attest, as if we're a boat in a storm and we're being thrown here and there and we have no control. Our, 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 our sails are, are un, of no use, our oars, our rudder, nothing works. The only thing we have is an anchor. Father, we pray, I pray, that each person here would have that anchor and that that anchor is Christ and His grace demonstrated so beautifully for us as He came like us in every way, yet without our sin, went to the cross, died on our behalf, my behalf, and each person here's behalf so that we don't have to face that punishment that we duly merit, but rather, by your grace, through faith, we may have life. I pray, oh God, that, that our anchors would be Christ, in Christ only. Not our good works, not, not our, our popularity or our, our acclaim or the things that we've have acquired over time. Father, I pray that none of us would hold anchors that are temporal and that are, are earthly. Because, Lord, those will break. Given enough time and the circumstances of our storms, they will all break. But Christ, you will never break. That's true wisdom. Father, might we be men and women who are marked by your wisdom. How foolish we'd be to depend on ourselves. Because I know myself. Lord, I know how prone I am to wander. Lord, I pray that you would lead us each and every one to depend on you. Father, that we would trust you. And I pray, God, if there's one this morning whose life is yet to depend on, on Christ, to find the anchor, that this might be the day. Father, for you, extend that invitation to each and every one of us. All we need to do is recognize that we are sinful, that we can't do this on our own, that we need Jesus. And we believe that he is who he's declared himself in power to be as he rose victorious from the dead as the scriptures proclaim. That he is God the Son. Believe that truth. Seek your forgiveness for our failure. And then begin to live and follow Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today who would desire that, then as we stand and sing in a moment, Lord, you would lead them to come and talk to me, find me after the service, but don't leave without recognizing that they may have the anchor, the the anchor that holds in the midst of storms. Father, we praise you for Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.